Hi, Shawnee. You're muted. Oh, yeah. Hey, girl, hey. What's up? Where's the rabbi at? Oh, hey, Jim. Hey, hi, Leia. Oh, I see another picture of you here. I feel like there's, um... Oh, that's Viola. That's this so is funny. so cute. Oh, you look so. Your... You look so. Sh you look so stark. <laughs> All right. It's a, a cute outfit. <laughs> we were, we were actually at Rabbi Shem Tov's son's bar mitzvah. <laughs> oh wow, well, that's fun. <laughs> I feel like Rabbi Kaufman's never. Lived. How are you guys? Oh, is this Rabbi Kaufman? It's good. Today? I have no idea. Know. Is. Yeah, it's Rabbi Kaufman. I haven't, I haven't Rabbi been Kaufman. to a Kaufman class in a minute. He does them twice a week. It's so Tanya. funny. I'm always like, I feel like I'm doing all these classes, but I keep missing him. He's like my favorite teacher. It's great. I'm glad I figured I it out. <laughs> I can send you the schedule if you want. I mean, it's on Instagram. I know. I'm. I know. Like yesterday, I was. I like convinced my mom to go to a class, and um, so we did that like locally. It's like a local class, like on on Zoom. Yeah. Wow. So I knew he was. He was on that yesterday, but I was like, "Well, I'm gonna have to take one for Wait, the team here." Take it. Yeah. <laughs> what time is it by you? Um. It is probably eleven o'clock. Yeah, eleven. Eleven o five. In the morning? Yep. Oh, wow. I just That's don't so want to put my hair thing on. I never want to put my hair thing on, so I just don't put my video on. Yeah. I just... I, especially Rabbi Kaufman doesn't care. Oh, yeah, but I think if it's There's just some girls, teachers who are like, please turn it on. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, with with Hindle, like I know Hindle really likes you to have your camera on, but I just am like, look, I'm just not gonna have my camera on, and she's just yeah. like, okay. At least you have like a a color as your picture. Like I think she's she's like I hate seeing these like white face like faceless things. Yeah, that's kind of depressing. I I had a picture earlier, but I just figured yeah. I don't know, make it like. At least it's pretty to look at. It's probably and, really hard to, to do that, to teach. Yeah, I mean, I get involved. Like, oh I make sure, like, if she asks a question, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like that would be really hard, especially with a small group of no one. Yeah. All right. We are on page 16 of chapter four of Tanya. I don't know if people are aware of this, but it is quite awkward to speak to blank screens. Some people are quite adept at it. They, they, they feel quite comfortable talking to the wall. I'm sure they're very, you know. I do that when I pray to God. Um, okay. Okay. We were discussing 
that the mitzvahs are the wisdom and will of Hashem, and in such they are one with Him, and in such they are infinite, which then raises the question, how can they be received by finite beings such as ourselves? And the idea that the Alter Rebbe used to address this was the idea, our sages say, that where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be, there you find His humility. Right? So the idea being that it is God's humility that brings the Torah um, or compresses the Torah from its infinite in an overt sense to being implicitly infinite, but it, but experientially finite. Because the Torah, as we receive it, it's the it's the writings of the the the, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the the teachings of our sages, as he says, the Midrash and the Gadas, the Halachas, the physical mitzvahs we do, and those things are all at least as far as we receive them, are finite things. There's a set body of knowledge, a certain amount of text, specific actions to perform, etc. And the ability to bring that infinite being of God into a, compress that into a finite form, this is attributed to God's humility. So what I wanted to do is to talk a little bit about this idea of humility and to understand that, at least in the context of God. Now, I want to start by telling two stories. One is a true story which did not happen. And the other is a true story which did happen. Okay? And they are both address the idea of humility um, from the perspective of chassidus. And then what we'll do is we'll elaborate a bit on that and then we'll tie it back to God's humility. So the first story, and this is a story which is true but did not happen. Um, is that there was once a yeshiva student, a bacher in a yeshiva, who was um, the cream of the crop. He was the top of his class. He was quite um, proficient in all uh, manners of Torah study, very knowledgeable, very charismatic, um, a cut above the rest. And it came time for him to get married. And so he went to the matchmaker, to the shatchen. And the shatchen uh, set him up with a particular fine young woman. And they went out. And he comes back and tells the shatran, the matchmaker, she's not for me. She has this problem, that problem, etc., etc. And so she sets him up with another woman. Again, there's a problem. And another woman, there's a problem. Every time he set up with someone, he always finds why they are deficient, why they're not um, the right person for him. So after a while, the shatran has enough of this, and she speaks to the Rosh Hashiva, and she tells the Rosh Hashiva that this Bach, he might be very amazing, but he lacks humility. And so I think you need to work a little bit on humility. He thinks he's so superior to everyone else that he can't find anybody that's worthy enough of marrying him. So the Rosh Yeshiva thinks that this is an excellent idea. And he sends him off to a Musa Yeshiva. Back in the day, they had a, 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 a what they were called Bate Musa. They were like special Yeshivas where people worked on their character. So he goes to one of these Bate Musa, Musa Yeshiva, and he works on his humility. And um, after, after a few months, they're very impressed. After all, he's very talented. He's very, he's very quick. And he masters the trait of humility. And so they send him on his way. Um, and he comes back to Shatra. And the Shatra thinks, well, now that he's humble, so she sets him up with the original woman that he first rejected. And after he goes out with her, he calls up the Shatra. And he's quite upset. And he says, 
I don't understand. Before, she wasn't good enough for me. Now, not only am I smart, charismatic, talented, but I'm also humble. All the more so she's not good enough for me. And this is a story that Chassidim used to say about the idea that you can treat humility as if it's a virtue to be acquired, a virtue to be attained. Okay. Um, now, to build on that theme and to tell you in a second story, that's, uh, the second story is an actual uh, uh, story that, that, act, that happened. Um, in Europe, in the times of the Chassid, early times of Chassid, times of the Alter Rebbe, um, the major Torah center, the major big city with all the big Torah scholars were, was Vilna. And second to Vilna was the city of Shklov. Shklov was, was I mean, I'm sure if you asked the people in Shklov, they, said, would, they would have said that Vilna is second to Shklov. But Vilna and Shklov, they were, they were the two top cities of Torah scholars. And the Av based in the head of the Jewish court of Shklov, his name was Reb Chanach Hendelshik. And he had a son who became one of the most famous chassidim of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Repinchas Reizas. Reiza was his mother-in-law's name. She convinced him to become a chassid. So the chassidim called him, instead of his last name, Repinchas Shik, they called him Repinchas Reizas because of his mother-in-law's influence on him. Anyway, his father, who was the head of the rabbinic court in the city, a very prominent rabbi of the era, was not a chassid. He was not very pleased with um, the approach of chassidus. And he was especially distraught that his son, who was uh, quite talented, he was, um, in, he, was, he was very knowledgeable, he was very devout, he was also wealthy, had taken to being not just a chassid, but a prominent chassid. And so he had attempted in all sorts of ways to convince his son out of it, and that didn't work. So he came up with a new idea, which was instead of trying to convince his son, Repinchas, to abandon the ways of chassidus, what he would in fact do is get or Pinchas to realize that it was that Chassidus was not really important and not really contributing anything by flipping things around and having Pinchas make him into a Chassid, right? But the idea was being that Pinchas would, would, would try to convince his father to be a Chassid and doing so would see the futility, the pointlessness of his Chassidic approach. So he comes to his son and says, tell me what's so special about being a Chassid. What do you get by being a Chassid? What does Chassidus offer? So, the Pinchas, um, he's trying to think of terminology that his father would be familiar with. He'd obviously want to use specific Hasidic jargon that wouldn't help. So he said, what Hasidus offers is anivus, is humility. So his father says, humility? It's ridiculous. Humility, there's so much in Judaism to teach one how to become humble without Hasidus. You don't need that. And he says, I'll prove it to you. I will work for the next few months on being humble without chassidus, and you'll see that I can achieve this humility without, being, without, without getting involved in your chassidic teachings. And so for the next three months, um, of Shik, the father, works, he studies all the ethical treatises, and he works on his behavior and character in order to make himself a more humble person. And a few months go by, and it is Erev Shabbos, and traditionally, Erev Shabbos was the time to take a bath. Now, we're used to bathing on a daily basis, most of us. However, back in the day, people did not bathe on a daily basis. You would go to the bathhouse once a week, maybe twice a week if you were, like, somewhat special. And so Jews traditionally go to the bathhouse on Shabbos, Erev Shabbos, Friday, in honor of Shabbos. And it was a whole procedure, and those people who are well-to-do, those people who are the upper strata of society, they would often come with an, an assistant, 
um, to carry their clothes to the bathhouse and um, help them, you know, do all of the things in the bathhouse. And so the, the, the Jew, who, the simple Jew who worked in the Rav's house, every week would carry the Rav's clothes to the bathhouse after and help the Rav get undressed. And he would, you know, do whatever needs to be done in like arranging the bath and pouring the hot water and et cetera, et cetera. And then carry the dirty clothes back. And one this Erev Shabbos, after a few months have gone by, the simple Jew worked in the house. He comes to the Rav, the chief rabbi of the city, and he says, you know, for 20 years, I've carried your clothes and helped you in the bath. Maybe it's time for us to reverse roles. And this week, you'll carry my clothes and uh, you'll help me in the bath. And so Rav Shik realized immediately that this was, in fact, the, the, his son, or Pinchas, had put the simple Jew up to this. The simple Jew wouldn't have dared to say something like this on his own. And so he realizes a test of his humility. And so he agrees. And he carries the clothes to the market. And it's quite awkward. Everybody's staring at the, the chief rabbi carrying the clothes like he's a simple servant behind this, this uneducated Jew. And in the bathhouse, he helps him. And he pours hot water. And he does everything that needs to be done. And everyone's looking quite askance at, at this quite unusual role reversal. And carries the dirty clothes back. And he gets home. And a short time later, his son Pinchas shows up and his son asks him, so what happened? Tells him the whole story. And, he's, and then he says, see, even without chassidus, I can act in a way of humility. And to which the Pinchas asks his father, he says, father, don't tell me what you did. Tell me how you felt. And so quoting the biblical uh, verse about Bilaam, Rav Shik said, if I only had a sword, dot, dot, dot. That's how angry he was inside at the humiliation. And so Pinchas said that with the proper in, uh, education of Chassidus, you wouldn't have even felt slighted. So the idea of humility okay, is not a behavior. You don't act. It's not a way you act. It's not a way you treat people. Humility at its core means that you are not impressed with yourself. You, as I like to put it, you are not the star of the narrative in your own head. You are not the most interesting thing that your mind can focus on. Not that you think highly of yourself, not that you think lowly of yourself. You just don't think that much about yourself altogether. There's other things beyond you that are much more compelling, much more engaging, you are not the most interesting thing to yourself. That is the trait of humility, right? And so the irony is when one wants to work on humility, why does one usually want to work on humility? Why does one want to aspire to becoming more humble? Why would you want to be more humble as a person? Anyone know? Because you're supposed to. Because you're supposed to. All right. Um, I guess that's true. You are supposed to. But why do you want to do what you're supposed to do? Because maybe you see a different aspect of your relationship with Hashem. If you're not the only one you think about, maybe like your relationship deepens if you think more of others. Okay. So you want your relationship to be better. And the way you're going to improve your relationship is by thinking less of yourself and more of others. Well, maybe for Hashem to want to be closer to me, yeah. Okay, so but you see how you're still really thinking about yourself? 
right? Yeah. This, is, this is what Hasidus points out, is that you can't actually work on true humility. It doesn't work like that, right? Because if you're aspiring to humility, right? Well, what that means is that you see a value in humility that would be good for you to have. It somehow enhances you're like that first story, right? About that Bachar who thinks that because now he's humble, he's actually better than he was before. And so he's more impressed with himself. Now, um, because the class is not really on us, I don't want to spend too much time focusing on it, but I really shouldn't leave you with this idea that you can't work on humility. That would be a, a bad moral lesson. Um, Hasidus has an analogy, which is, that when um, wheat or other grains, when they grow, there is a chaff that surrounds the grain. And inside the chaff, the grain that actually is food, that's where, that, that's where it grows and develops. So it's not that you have enough chaff and then you turn it into the grain, but the chaff creates a, and uh, I'm using this word intentionally, a safe space for the grain to grow. And so similarly, a Jew who has a godly soul, if they live their life in a way that creates a safe space for their godly soul to develop, the innate humility of the godly soul develops. So you can't, you can't, you can't build humility out of personal aspiration, but you can live your life in such a way that it makes space for the innate humility to actually grow and develop. Because in essence, what, the, what humility is, is not being caught up with yourself, not being impressed with yourself, not being trapped in seeing yourself as the center or even the most interesting thing. There's a, there's a famous story that one time the, the, the chassid of Mendel Futterfass was one time counting men for a minion. Now, the traditional way you count men for a minion is you don't say one, two, three, four because we don't count Jews. You pick a verse that has 10 words and you point to each Jew and you say one of the words of the verse and then you know how many you have and what most people do is they point to themselves as the first one. So you get, hey, Shia, and then the next one, Asamecha, and you know. And so Mendel, um, being himself quite a humble person, um, he just forgot to count himself as the minion. So there were, there's a minion. There was 10 people there exactly. And he done through, and he's like waiting to, to, for the 10th person. And people keep like saying, let's start. And he keeps counting again. And then eventually someone points to him, and he, and he realizes that he forgot to count himself. Now, of a person who lives their whole life with the welfare of others in mind, that actually reflects something. It's not just like they were forgetful or something. So humility at its core is that you're not impressed with yourself. Now, a corollary to humility is, is flexibility. The more humble you are, the more flexible you are. What do I mean by that? In order to be able to accommodate others, to help others, to um, share with others, right? You need to make sure that, you know, things are, are, are reaching them, that, that you're meeting their needs. And that means that, you know, when there's a, when there's a tension of, 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 of balancing your schedule, your approach, your comfort zone with other people's needs other people's issues, right? That's something we all encounter in life, okay? Now, 
generally speaking, there are, I would say, three approaches that people have to this if we keep humility out. One approach is, and, and it's obviously people are not rigidly boxed into one of the three and not the others, but it's a mixture of some of these, of these three approaches. Approach number one is, well, you should change. I'm not changing, right? Like, I'm willing to help you on my terms, and if it doesn't work out for you, well, that's tough luck on you. Like, everyone's familiar with that attitude? Okay. There's another attitude where I'll help you on my terms, and I feel like a martyr doing it. I feel like I'm being put upon, okay? Um, and if that happens one too many times without getting enough, uh, without, without getting enough recognition or compensation, um, then we get very upset. We feel that we're, 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 we're our, our dignity is being violated, okay? So one approach is I'm not willing to bend, you bend. I'll help you, but I'll help you on my terms what's convenient for me. The other thing is, yeah, I'll give up my plans. I'll do things that are inconvenient for me. I'll go to my comfort zone for you, but I'm a martyr. I'm, I'm sacrificing myself for you, and you better appreciate it. Okay? And what's the third approach? The third approach is trying to look for win-win situations. How can this work well for both of us? Let's be creative. How can I get what I want and how can you get what you want in such a way that works out nicely for both of us? Okay. Everyone familiar with those kind of three ways of trying to like help people and interact with people and share with people? Someone has a question, yes. Um, is it possible for the second method that you mentioned where like, um, I feel like it's really common where someone's like, um, I'll help you, but like as a martyr, is it possible for, for true, um, selflessness and like willing to compromise that comes from humility can turn into that in some way? Like, yes, I, because people are complicated. Okay. Cause I find yes. that, you know, people who are truly humble and really embody that. And sometimes when it gets too much, it turns into that. And it's not because their intentions started off rotten initially. Yeah. Just that's why I said that, that. That's why I said that, that, that in real life, it's much more complicated. But these are the basic things. Now, the humble person, the humble person, help is the person who, when helping somebody takes them out of their comfort zone, requires them to go out of their comfort zone, they don't feel like they're being asked to do anything unusual. They don't think they're being asked to do anything. Um, in fact, let's put it this way. They don't feel like they're being asked to go out of their comfort zone. That's a better way of putting it. Okay. That they're not so in touch with their comfort zone and their schedule and what's convenient for them that it's not really a big ask for them to do something different. That's what I mean by humility breeds flexibility. The humble person is not so wedded to their particular way of doing things to begin with that changing it is a big ask. So they're certainly not going to insist that the other person, you know, accommodate them, that they'll help, I'll help you, but on my schedule, that's certainly not going to happen. But they're also not going to feel like a martyr because they don't feel like they're giving anything up. I wasn't so wedded to doing it this way or having it at this time or, you know, whatever the case might be. So I thought I've sacrificed anything. And that also means that they don't really feel they need to negotiate and find a win-win. It's just very simple. This person needs help and I can help them. That's that. 
then you move on. Okay. Now, the deeper that, yes. I have two questions. Okay. First is that I find it very interesting that you use the word balance, but do you, are you referring to, are you referring to a respective balance, like that it's different for every person or a humble person always has an off balance balance? A humble person has no need to balance things because they don't, they're not wedded to their side of things. They're not attached to their side of things. In other words, so the humble person is very, the, the humble person, um, the, way, the way it's put in the Talmud is like a humble person is like a reed. You can bend a reed very, very far back. It won't break, right? Reg, most of us are not like a reed. Most of us are like a, a, are like a piece of wood. We'll bend up to a point, And if you push us past that point, we break. Those of us who are more rigid, we don't bend them as much. Some of us are bend, but we want you to know we're bending. We're bending. And if you bend us any further, we're going to break. Right? And some of us were like, I'll bend this much if you bend that much. But the reed doesn't have this issue because bending is not an issue for reed. Like a reed doesn't, doesn't have that rigidity to it. It won't snap. You can like bend it all the way around back or around itself. It's fine. It's not a big deal. So humility is operating on a whole different plane because the person doesn't have this, this anchoring in this is me and this is what I need to do and this is what I need to achieve and this is what my agenda is and this is what, what's okay for this and what's not okay. They're not, they're, they're not, they don't have that to whatever degree they have humility. Okay. Humility, by the way, is not common. I would just like to point this out in case you were... Right? <laughs> Acting humble might be common, but real, like, the internal feeling of humility is not that common. And my other question is, are there Batay Masar around today? Honestly, there's, like, a, like a thing that they do in some Lutfish Baal Tshuva Yeshivas to, like, kind of recreate it a little bit, somewhat, but not anything serious. The Bate Musa, frankly, were quite extreme, I'll have you know. Like, in order to, like, break your attachment to your sense of social privilege and prestige, they would do things like, if you're a big Torah scholar, you should walk outside in the summer wearing a fur coat um, so that everybody laughs at you, so that you don't get, so that you break your hold of feeling like people should, like, be deferential to you in, in, in public, right? Stuff like that. It was, it, was, it was a bit, you know, out there as a social experiment, <laughs> Um, many of the t ideas and teaching have been incorporated into, I would say, main, mainstream orthodoxy, but like actual things where they put the focus on that and to, to extremes. I mean, in some of the Bate Mostra, you would have an I am nothing session, which is that you would, you, would, you would stand up in front of everybody and you would say with as much conviction as you could that you're nothing. And you would repeat that over and over again until hopefully you started to believe it. I'm not sure why that would work, but that was, you know, the, the joke goes is that a guy comes to the to the bate, the bate Musa, and um, he sees one of the big veterans. He gets up and he says with tremendous conviction, "I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing." And so he goes and he stands next to me. He also says, "I'm nothing, I'm nothing." And so the veteran turns to him and says, "You just got here. How could you be nothing? It takes years to become nothing." Um, 
But yeah, it was an interesting thing. It did, I don't know how long it lasted. Maybe half a century. Maybe. And probably less than that. It was quite controversial. Um, but like, there's like some like imitations of that I've heard in, in some of the Fisher Balchavishivas. Sounds like a cult. Look, any weird practice can sound like a cult. I think you have to look at the overall dynamics of it, right? I personally have a, I personally have a, a, a two-pronged test for cults if we're on the topic, which is how I determine whether I think something is a cult. Okay. Um, test number one, does it insist on breaking your uh, and separating you from your previous family bonds and deep um, friendships? That's, if, that, if, if that's part of being a member of the group is you now have to break the other deep relationships you have, that's one of the, you're definitely entering into what I think is cult territory. Um, and the second thing is if it doesn't recognize what our sages say that ain't they saying Shavish, no two people's minds work exactly alike. So even though any group can have doctrines and principles and orthodoxy, and if you don't subscribe to those, you can't be part of the group, but there has to be a, not just an understanding and even encouragement that within that, different people understand the orthodoxy differently. And the, so you're not trying to create exact cookie cutter mo models of things. That people are different fundamentally. And so a bunch of people who believe the same fundamental truths will still understand those truths and practice them differently. And if those two things are present in a group, that there's, they cut you off, for, the, the idea is that you should separate yourself from all of your other deep relationships. And um, there's no, not, no, no, not even no celebration, but no even respect for the idea that those minds are different. Um, and so there's the er erasing of basic, um, you know, individual autonomy and, 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 and personality. I would say at that point, my, I would say, I would stay away from any group like that. That's my personal thing as a, as a completely untrained sociologist, right? <laughs> Take that or leave it. Um, okay. But I think weird practices in of themselves, you know, that's just a matter of your, of your expectations, right? What's weird to one person or one group is perfectly normal. When I was in, when I was in middle school, we had to read a, 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 a description of a weird culture, which was actually Americans. And everything was described by the anthropologist, assuming you didn't really know what was going on. So describing brushing teeth, not knowing it has anything to do with oral hygiene, that, that they have a ritual where they take a, a rod, right, with hair, right, and rub it across their, and rub it in their mouths for several minutes every morning and evening while gazing into a shrine, right? <laughs> I mean, you could describe it that way, right? So, so I'm saying weird should not be like a, something you used to judge. You, you, okay, fine. So getting back to the Tanya, so if the humbler you are, the more flexible you are when a, a humble person will actually do what they need, will, will, will adapt and change in order to make sure that someone else has what they need, right? So a humbler teacher is the teacher that will spend more time with the student and will think of more creative ways and try and engage in, in, in the student in, 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 in differently in order to reach the student, all while not really feeling like they're doing anything special. 
Okay? The, the, the Talmud tells us this famous story of, of Afreda that he had a student who was not so smart and so Afreda would spend, would, would teach the lesson to the student 400 times. And one time the student wasn't paying attention. He was nervous that Afreda was going to leave early. So after 400 times, the Afreda saw that the, the student had not understood the lesson. So why weren't you, well, what happened? He says, well, I wasn't paying attention because I thought you were going to leave. And so Afreda says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to leave. And he sat and explained to him another 400 times. Okay. Now, a person's willingness to do that, at that comes from a place of sincerity, is, you know, is, you're, 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 so just because you're fast doesn't mean they're fast. You can go slower. Just because to you it's, it's, it's in a particular form doesn't mean that for them it has to be in that form. And a humbler person will, when they're trying to share and to help and to, to, to engage another person, they will be much more able to adapt to what that other person needs. Now, if God is humble and God is infinite and we are lacking his infinite being, we are devoid of that. We are finite created beings and God wants to share that his infinite being with us. His humility allows him to be flexible to present his infinite being in a finite form, right? The same dynamic that we have in human beings that you can be different in order to engage others because of your humility. And that comes with a genuineness and a sincerity. So that's the same attribute with God. So God, an arrogant God, if there could be such a thing, it really can't be. There's a, there's a nice argument that God can't be arrogant. But let's take that for another time. An arrogant God would say, well, I'm infinite and you are finite. And so I guess tough luck for you. Like the, the, the finite cannot partake of the infinite. The finite has, doesn't have the capacity to receive the infinite and just it's too bad. And, you know, I'm not, not mean, I'm not being nasty, right? It's like the person who's smart, who's arrogant, looks at the person who's stupid and says, well, you're just not smart enough to understand these things. So it's, it's too bad for you, right? But a humble person doesn't see it that way. A humble person says, well, well, there's no reason just because they can't have it the way it is by me doesn't mean they can't have it in a different way. Why should it stay by me? Why not? Why couldn't it go by them? Why couldn't it reach them? Even if it means it's in a different form, it's manifest differently. And so it's God's humility. Yes, God, I'm infinite. I am ain't self. But there's no reason why my, the, the, the infinitude of my being has to be the way it is by me. There's no reason why I couldn't be flexible and bring it into a way that finite beings can also receive it. And so that's what we know as the Torah and the mitzvahs. That's what we know as, as he says, the, 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 the 613 commandments, the laws, the letters of the, of, of the Tanakh, the writings and speakings of the sages, all of that are just the format of God putting his infinite in a in a finite presentation because of his humility. Because that not being impressed with his own infinitude and therefore having a sense of superiority because of it, but the contrary, having a sense there's no reason why the infinitude has to be locked up the way it is by me. Why can't it be presented differently so it reaches others as well? Right? And this is in fact what our sages say that when God gave us the Torah, he says, I'm you. He says, he says that he's giving us himself. So that's the connection here between the idea of humility and the Torah, right? That it's God wants that, the, that, that his infinite being should be, um, as the Alter puts it here, 
able to be comprehended and grasped and fulfilled, right? That we should be able to engage with God. God, we able to, to, to receive God. And that requires him to be flexible about the manner in which he's present, right? To compress him, his, himself into a form which is finite. Okay. Now there's a tremendous discussion in Chassidus about that process and how that happens. In Tanya here, the Alter Rebbe wants to emphasize a few points about it. One was A, that it happens, and B, that it relates to his attribute of humility. And then there's a third aspect of this, which we're going to learn in the next paragraph, the paragraph that starts therefore. Are there, are there questions before we actually read something inside today? Yes. Um, I missed yesterday's class, so if it's possible you covered this already. Um, but um, if I'm humble and I want to transmit something to someone, it's within the realm of possibility for me to give it to them differently than I have it. Because I'm flexible and the item that I have is flexible. Um, with God, it seems like God is flexible. So that thing is cleared. But the item he's dealing with doesn't seem to be flexible. Infinity doesn't seem to be flexible. So how can he give it even if he's flexible, if the item he's dealing with isn't so flexible. So, so I, I did address that somewhat yesterday, which is that what he's giving is actually himself. Because the Torah is his wisdom and his will, which are one with him, which I'm not going to go over explaining that again. And so he's actually, if you, can, if you can accept, which you seem to in the premise of your question, that he is flexible and the, quote, item is himself, well, then he can be flexible with himself. And that's what the Torah actually is. Now, but, but to answer your question from a different angle, because um, there, is a, there, is a, there is a common mistake in understanding the term ain't so for infinite, which is that we, un, we often understand the term ain't so and, and we associate it with some sense of largeness. So if you have something large, right, there's a limit to how flexible you can be in compressing it into something small. Okay, that, so like, if God is infinite and we're finite, so that means, like, like how can you fit the infinite into the finite? Because the infinite is much bigger in some sense. There's, a, there's, a, there's an often a, 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 I wouldn't say it's really a fully-fledged concept, but more of like an instinctual notion. Okay. What Ein Sof actually means, or infinite actually means in the context of Chassidus, is that it has no edge. It has no boundary. It has no limit. Now, the reason why it has no limit um, is not because it, it, it just like keeps going on forever and ever and ever and ever, but because there's no concept of something else blocking it. If you think about anything that's limited, everything that's limited, it's limited because it encounters something else that it has to... Um, respect okay and god's being is not that kind of a being there isn't some sort of external thing to god that god has to conform to okay so when we're speaking about the infinity of his being we don't mean to say um that we don't we don't mean to say something that is stuck as being like very large. So like mathematical infinity really doesn't work in this sense because mathematical infinity is basically what happens when you 
take some kind of algorithmic process and just keep running it without stop, does it settle down at a particular um, value or does it just run off? And if it just runs off, we call that infinite. So you have positive infinity, negative infinity, testimony, small, whatever the case might be. But, but here we mean infinite is much more is much more in, in much more in the in, in, in the sense like if you want to think of um, like people will say like the power of your imagination is infinite which I'm not saying it is but what people mean by that is that your imagination doesn't constrain by outside things that's really what they mean mm. right there's nothing outside your imagination that can tell it it can't imagine something which probably is not true but just that's what people mean by that so when we're saying that he's saying so there's nothing externally that constrains him okay if there's nothing external that constrains him and he's humble so why can't he bring that it, that mode of being into a form that is quite appears to us quite constrained and manageable right the torah for all of its supposed infinity is actually a finite book right you can hold one in your hand there's only so many letters on the page right it has the appearance of being quite manageable. There's only 613 mitzvahs. There are only four sections of the code of Jewish law, right? You want to download all of the, all of the uh, Torah literature of, of the, uh, you know, of, of the fundamental works, right? The Talmud and all that. It fits in, you know, in a, in a standard iPhone, right? Even if you want to have like all of all the expansive, like random books that people have written, you know, and call that Torah and have it, you can still fit it on a hard drive, right? It's, it's, it, it, it's not unmanageable and unwieldy. It is something that we can engage with. It has parameters to it. And in that sense, it has this sense of being finite. But at its core, it's not something that's constrained by something outside of itself because it's God being humble about his own presentation, right? The analogy that's used is that... Mm. Uh, when 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 a parent, um, like when 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 a parent plays with their child, right? So let's assume for the i for the purposes of this analogy, the parent, the feelings the parent has are not constrained by the by by the childishness of the activity of playing blocks, right? Those feelings are are very profound and very deep, and they go to the core of the parent, right? But the parent doesn't have this sense, well, in order for you to engage me on this level, I have to wait for you to grow up and you have to be a parent and then you'll know what it is to be a parent and then we'll be able to, no, the parent can be, bring that depth of feeling to the child while sitting around playing blocks, right? The, 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 there's a, there's a there, so it, infinite, is, infinite is not a, 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 a quantitative measurement of how much yeah. stuff there is. Right. It's, 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 there's something that has an intrinsicness to it, an autonomy to it that's not constrained by anything outside of itself. And if such a being who's like that is also humble, so why can't he present himself in a very concrete form? Essentially, you're saying that um, numerical infinity is only quantitative, so it's constrained by the fact that it's infinite, but if we're dealing with an infinity that's qualitative, qualitative in nature, then right. there's no reason why it can't right. fit in which, something finite. Right. Which, is, 
which which is why I, I go back and forth on using the word infinite because on the one hand it's the right word but on the other hand it's meaning in mathematics and how since we live in a world that is scientific and science the language of science is math the quantitative notion of infinity has really taken over the popular consciousness and so i always go back and forth are we doing more harm or good by mm -hmm. using the wording but whatever Interesting. Thank you. Okay. Now, <laughs> therefore, has the Torah been compared to water? For just as water descends from a higher to a lower level, so the Torah is ascended from its place of glory, which is as will and wisdom, blessed be he. For the Torah and the Holy Blessed be our one, and are one and the same, and no thought can grasp him at all. And from there, the Torah is progressively descending through hidden stages, stage after stage with the descent of the world until it clothed itself in the corporeal substances and in the things of this world comprising all the commandments of the Torah and their laws and their combinations of material letters written in ink in a book, namely the 24 volumes of the Torah, Prophets, and Writings, and all of this in order that every thought should be able to grasp them and even the faculties of speech and action, which are on a lower level than thought, should be able to apprehend them and be clothed in them. So the idea is that the comparison of Torah to water captures the idea that we've been saying. Now, um, I see we only have 10 minutes left, so I will attempt to cover as much of this as I can. There is a general rule in the classic um, rabbinic literature, meaning the Talmud, the Midrashim, things like that, which is also true of Hasidus, and it's especially a true of Tanya. And that rule is that an idea, an, an idea is only given an analogy if the analogy is necessary to help explain the idea, okay? There are two main reasons why people use analogies. One is to make something more intellectually relatable, right? So the idea is abstract or counterintuitive. And so by finding some example of a similar idea in a more concrete or intuitive sense, you can then use that as a model to understand the idea that's hard to relate to. That's how whenever the, 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 the Talmudic sages or Chassidus and especially Tanya ever has an analogy, it's for that reason, that without the analogy, the idea is either A, too abstract, or B, too counterintuitive, or both, that prevents us from really understanding what's going on. So you need a more concrete analogy or a more intuitive analogy to then work off of. Now, there is another reason why people use analogies. This is, in fact, the more common way that people use analogies which is you want to make something emotionally relatable, right? Um, that you want people to, to resonate more with them, which means that in the abstract, theoretically, they understand the idea, but to make it feel more relevant and pertinent, you want to um, flesh it out and give examples. So, um, for instance, when you teach little kids, you need to do a lot of that because little kids, if you just don't give them a whole story, the, the, they just don't feel the relevance of what you're talking about. You need to really flesh it out. So the issue here, and we'll see this actually a few times in Tanya, is when the Alter gives an analogy for an idea that you can perfectly explain without the analogy, you have to ask, well, what are we missing about this idea that you needed the analogy for? Right? Why does the Alter ever need to say that the Torah is being compared to water? We, we've, already, we've already just explained this idea. We, we, yeah, the Torah comes down and... and it's you know product of God's humility, and that's very nice. And in order for us to relate to it, why? How does analogizing it to water 
add to our understanding in a way that we wouldn't have already had given what we've already read and explained. And there are two elements to the descent of water that are critical here. Um, the first one is that when water descends from a high place to a low place, it is no longer in the high place, right? If you have a pitcher of water, you hold it up in the air and you pour it into a cup, whatever water ends up in the cup is no longer in the pitcher. Now, there are things that are not like that. So if you take a candle and you kindle another candle from your first candle, you now have a flame on the first and the second candle. And one would generally think that when dealing with things that are of a more spiritual nature, that would be more like the candle, right? That just because God brings down his infinite being to us in the form of the Torah and the mitzvahs doesn't mean that God is, you know, trapped down here. He's up high and he's down low. But by comparing it to water, what the altar was actually alluding to is that this descent is actually much more like the descent of water, where the very fact that the water has reached the lower level means it's no longer in the higher level. Okay. Now, what does that mean practically? Okay. And why is it? And this is, what that means is we have a principle that the Torah is not in heaven. Okay. On a very basic level, if a prophet comes and says, this is what God wants you to do. This is how the mitzvah should be performed. And he says, and the way I know this is because God told me, then we kill him for being a false prophet. Because since God gave us the Torah and the Torah is his wisdom and will, therefore, where is his wisdom and will um, determined? Where does it emanate from? It has to emanate from the Jewish people's study and exercise and practice of the Torah. So if someone wants to make a halachic ruling, the basis needs to be the human activity of studying Torah and ruling based on their studies rather than waiting for some God-given revelation. Meaning the authority that's, that, that's implicit in God's wisdom and will resides exclusively amongst the Jewish people, not in heaven, not in some higher spiritual realm. And, and this is actually said quite explicitly in the Talmud, that the angels come and ask God, um, when, when, should, when is one of the holidays? And God says, well, I don't know. We have to go to the court of the Jewish people and they'll determine when the holidays are. So which day do you blow shofar and which day do you eat matzah? The authority to determine these things and the fact the authority to determine any aspect of the Torah that needs to be adjudicated resides with the Jewish people. It no longer exists in heaven. And that is a... Um, a a very straightforward manifestation of this idea that when God shared himself with us, it's not that in addition to God having this kind of supernal existence, he also has this earthly existence. But in fact, once he gave us the Torah, the only way God is actually present in any level of reality is within the Torah of the Jewish people. Just like when you pour the water, and you put it in, if the water is, when you pour the water, if the water is in the cup, it's no longer in the pitcher. If the water is in the low place, it's no longer in the high place. And that means um, once God gives the Torah, we think, of, we, 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 think of, we think of God as no longer really being beyond the world and um, 
we wait for messages from him, but rather God is found within the Torah and we have to engage the Torah as we have it. And that's where we get our, that's where we get our, 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 um, our wisdom and our sense of his will. Okay. In fact, this is so much the case that the Rambam Maimonides in his introduction to the Talmud actually spends, I would say maybe even a third of it. That might be an exaggeration, maybe a quarter of a, of going on a detour of explaining why there's prophecy at all. That if God has given himself to us, then once we have Moshe and, you know, and the Harsina and the giving of the Torah, at that point, why do we need prophets anymore? And he, and this is not the form to get into that. Um, but the Ramaman goes through a whole long explanation of the role that prophets play in Judaism because the idea of the divine will and wisdom is not really, is not really something that comes down from on high. It's not revealed from the heavens. It's, it's something that lies and is present within, within the Jewish people. Now, there is another manifestation of this idea. Um, and this is the principle that we have in, in, that's mentioned in, in the Lacha Codes. Minog Yisrael Torahi. The custom of the Jews is Torah. Meaning, there's elements of the Torah which are clearly given by God, the biblical commandments. There's the elements of Torah which are clearly based on what God gave us, which is the rabbinic things that God, one of the Torah is to have a, the rabbis adjudicate and legislate additions to the Torah. And so those are, those are also God-given in a certain sense, which is why we make the, mit, the bracha of God commanded us even over rabbinic mitzvahs. But then there's the idea of the things that seemingly arise spontaneously and organically from the Jewish people's practice of Judaism that don't really appear to have any direct um, lineage back to any, any mitzvah in the Torah or any, any exposition of any verse. Okay, I'll give you just some examples. Um, what food are you supposed to eat on Rosh Hashanah? Anyone know? Apples and honey. Apples and honey, right? So I have little kids that have gone to kindergarten, and kindergartners know that there are two major God-given commandments on Rosh Hashanah. One is eating apples and honey, and the other is shofar. <laughs> Which is funny, because shofar is right there in the Torah, and apples and honey, like, go find a basis for that. Like, once it's a custom, we can explain the significance of the custom, and then it's codified, Right? Um, what food are you supposed to eat or buy? What food are you supposed to eat on Shavuos? Cheesecake. Cheesecake, right? Dairy. Why? Well, first it's a custom, then we figure out reasons why. <laughs> right? So there's like a, 101 reasons why to eat dairy. But the real truth of the matter is that those reasons are all things people came up with after they noticed, hey, Jews all eat dairy. And, you know, if you're you know, more Ashkenazi, so we all eat cheesecake for some reason which is good. I like cheesecake. Um, and so there's a lot of things like that in Judaism, which are customs. And granted, there are customs of Ashkenazim, there are customs of Sephardim, the customs of Yemenite. And there's an actual principle in the Torah that minog Yisrael Tari, that the customs of the Jewish people in their practice of Judaism or in their ethical conduct in the socioeconomic sphere itself take on the force of Torah. And one of the most extreme examples of this is that we say the hallow prayers on Rosh Chodesh. Now, the mitzvah of hallow, which is a rabbinic mitzvah, does not apply to Rosh Chodesh. 
And it also doesn't apply, by the way, to the last days of Pesach. And we say hollow. We say half hollow to make sure that we know that it's just a custom. But it's, you know, you grow up and it's like half hollow, whole hollow. You don't even realize that one of those things just organically grew out of the Jewish people's practice of Judaism on their own. And one was legislated by the rabbis. And so this idea that the Torah was brought down and given to the Jewish people that is no longer in heaven, it's like the water. One of the applications of that is that when the Jewish people as a community develop practices in their performance of the, of the religious element of Judaism or the socioeconomic, socioeconomic things, there's all sorts of customs that have become established in terms of how Jews are supposed to live their lives in a more of a mundane sense, these things take on the significance of Torah and are actually then later codified in subsequent codes of Jewish law. Okay? And there's discussions to what degree they have legal force, to what degree they override other precedents. And the only basis for that is that it's the custom of the Jewish people. And that's the idea is that the authority of God's will and wisdom was actually given to us like the water. And if the water is here, it isn't somewhere else. So both the rabbi's power to legislate and the Jewish people's power to generate organically customs, these are real world manifestations of this idea that the Torah is coming down. It's not just God sharing with us so we can also partake, but we in this sense become the exclusive possessors of God's true being and the will and wisdom of God, which is a big responsibility, I would like to point out. It should pardon the phrase, humble us. Which is actually the point that the altar wants to get to, that the significance of the Torah mitzvahs that we possess is far greater than the role they play in our spiritual lives. But we'll, we'll talk more about that next time. There's a second aspect of this analogy that's also counterintuitive about the water, but we'll have to do that next time as well. All right. Have Rabbi, are we going to start with that next week? That was my plan, unless there's some like well-founded objection. Okay. All right. Have a wonderful Shabbos. I will see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi.